Welcome to USA Football's Coach and Coordinator Podcast, where top football coaches from around the country share their stories, philosophies, concepts, and strategies to help you get better on and off the field. Now, here's your host, Keith Grabowski. On today's podcast, I share the Paul Brown system, which he wrote about in his book entitled PB, The Paul Brown Story. Uh, It's a great book, another in my collection of great coaching books, and a lot here that I think is just timeless coaching. Uh, Just to review some of Paul Brown's accolades, he was a four-time AAFC champion in 1946-1949, three-time NFL champion. He was the AP NFL Coach of the Year in 1970, Sporting News Coach of the Year in 49-51-53, and three-time UPI NFL Coach of the Year, 57-69-70. He's in the Browns Ring of Honor. He's the NFL 100th Anniversary All-Time Team. And he also won a national championship at the college level at Ohio State, as well as four high school national championships at Maslin Washington High School in Ohio. He is a coaching legend, and I think as we go through and hear from him, hear the words of what he believes to be some of the most important things that make up what he calls the Paul Brown system, I think you're going to see that those are just timeless things that we see in successful programs again and again. This isn't necessarily the whole chapter. I'm going to jump around to some of the most impactful parts. But he starts here at the beginning of the chapter. The success of the Browns soon had people talking about a Paul Brown system, but I never laid claim to such a thing. I suppose they refer to our general philosophy encompassing such things as our practice procedures, sending in the plays with messenger guards, and our belief in a wide-open offense, particularly in our passing game. Whatever the reference, many of the principles are in use today. For the last several years, I have been able to look at the rosters of coaching staffs in the NFL and count some 35 or 40 of my former staff members or players who are now coaching. I take a great deal of satisfaction from this. I've always felt that underlying any football system, there must be a philosophy, a series of basic beliefs that set the tone for the players who make all of the game's technical aspects come alive. As for my own, it is really nothing more than those things I believe in myself, the bottom line of everything that is necessary to be successful in life as well as in football. The proper player-coach relationship is the first commandment in my philosophy of football. And when I was coaching, I always put it into action on the very first day of training camp, which is the most important time a team spends together during the entire season. We never got involved in the technical football matters until everyone understood what we expected of him off the field, in practice, in the locker room, and in a game. My first lecture set the tone. It lasted about two hours and never varied much from year to year. In it, I told our team such things as, starting a football season is a state of mind and heart as well as a physical experience. Don't ever get the idea that I'm trying to psych you with this talk. I believe in every word and everything I say. You veterans have heard these lectures many times, but when you get so that you can't pay attention or believe it anymore, you're getting ripe and you know what the next step is. Plop. We start all over from the very beginning every year. It's a new season. Nothing is ever taken for granted. Everyone starts equally, rookies and veterans alike. We figure that if you start a new house with a narrow foundation, you can only go so high. We try to build a broad foundation. 
Tomorrow it may be hot and we'll practice. Later there will be snow and we'll practice. It may be raining buckets and we'll practice. Soon you'll accept this as a way of life. It's just a part of our football. I want to pause there and I think point out some important things. Just that idea, number one, that you don't take anything for granted. The year always begins with setting the tone. And you see this time and time again in successful programs. Guys do that. They have that talk. That might be the same from year to year. But the point is it is so important that they're never going to take it for granted that their players know that. Even if they have a very veteran team. They know they have new guys on the team, but also they're starting, as Coach said, from that foundation. Such an important place to start. Coach next goes into his thoughts on his coaching staff. My coaches are partners, not assistant coaches. What they know, I will know. We have nothing to do at night but talk and think about you. Call us by our first names. We're all good friends, a happy family. We have just one objective, to win. And remember, if you're cut from the squad, be a man about it and don't take it personally. We can't keep everybody. I love the way that coach thinks about that, that his assistant coaches are partners, that they are there as part of a team rather than some kind of linear structure from top to bottom. Certainly, every coaching staff has some of those things. There is a chain of command, but I love this idea that the coaches are partners. I also found it very Uh, surprising to hear that he would allow his players to call him by their first names but I think that's the kind of relationship he wanted his coaches to have with those players he moves on a little bit later and talks about the kind of players he wants we don't want thug football players I'll take my players high class cold deadly smart hard-hitting and hard-running always remember when you meet an obnoxious football player the meanest thing you can do to him is to beat him They can play dirty, call you names, violate the rules, just beat them. They understand that more than anything. I think in a time right now where we've had this, uh, you know, we have all these social media platforms, there's trash talking, it happens at games, that whole idea of remaining first class, I think is so important to our game. And, you know, I think we'd all like to see a little bit of that throwback to some of the Paul Brown days where you could do whatever you want to us, you could play dirty, you could trash talk. We're just going to come out and beat you. I love that idea. Coach Brown goes on. We want to keep this one of the great football teams of all times, a team you'll be proud to say years from now that you played on. I don't want you to play for your paycheck. I want you to play for the sheer desire of licking somebody. You must sacrifice something to get to the top. That's why we ask you to train. I call it paying the price. As time changed, I altered some of the substance of my remarks to cover the problems of the day. At Cincinnati, when alcohol and drugs had begun to infect our young people, I let our players know that I could recognize these problems. We actually had a federal narcotics agent brief our staff on the entire spectrum of drugs. The player who reported in the morning wearing dark glasses wasn't too hard to figure out. Our rules were not for moral reasons. They were simply for the player's own good and for the welfare of our team to give us the best possible chance of winning. I think that's another important point here. I mean, we have such a great platform for teaching all kinds of values. And sometimes I think we can maybe get on moral high ground and and uh, overdo it on some of those things. I think you got to be very careful because uh, the more you start to push more and more towards the morals of things, it gets to be a little bit of indoctrination. Everything just has to be pointed to the good of the team. And I think that 
that's what Paul Brown did best in being able to put together his team. He goes on to talk about what his training camps are like. I never considered a training camp oppressive. Some people claimed players were treated like small children and given restrictions which were unnatural for grown men. But our training camps were never run that way. I always strive to make life as natural and as pleasant as possible during those few summer weeks. In our earlier years, many pro football teams held their camps in remote areas of the country and players were supposed to work hard, get plenty of fresh air, sunshine, and bed rest, and live in what amounted to a monastic existence in order to build their stamina for the upcoming season. I agree with the health aspects, but I thought that putting a group of men in the wilderness, cutting them from, off from their families, was a bit unnatural and unfair to them and their families. We sent our players home every weekend after Saturday practice or preseason game, and they didn't have to report back until Sunday night. I wanted to keep them and their families intact, to spend time with their wives and children. Sometimes my wife lived at camp with me because I felt that a woman's presence lent a certain tone to this kind of existence. And our coaches usually had their wives come and visit on Wednesdays and join us for dinner. The coaches could always go home on the weekends. I think we hear time and time again some of the best staffs. When I have coaches on the podcast, they talk about that exact thing. Uh, go to our home team series. I'll, I'll share that playlist uh, in here where we've talked to coaches from every level, very successful coaches on their coaching staffs and how they handle family. And I think that's exactly what Paul Brown is talking about here. Brown then shares some ideas on what they emphasize in training camp. In training camp, we constantly emphasize doing everything one proper and precise way, from how we assembled in the classroom and took calisthenics to our routine warm-up drill to how each play had to be run. Nothing was ever hurried because we wanted to make sure we got it right. In this way, the discipline and the tenor of our team were established at an early date. In every camp, I applied the basic laws of learning, seeing, hearing, writing, then doing again and again. All the players diagrammed the complete play and wrote their individual assignments in detail in their playbooks. We wanted them to know the play's complete concept, not just their individual parts. We checked those playbooks too and graded the players on their accuracy. They were then tested on Sunday by having to draw up the entire play. I usually told them on Thursday what plays the test would cover, and they always were from among those offense, offensive plays or defenses we had taken on during the week. Most of the rookies had never been required to do this before, and they had to do some intense studying to pass and have a chance to survive. Over the years, the veterans had become used to it. Many thought it was an elementary school approach, but to this day, those players can recite the dick that we laid down from simple calisthenics to the most complex play. Our classroom procedures were the very basis of our football system. I think it's so important there. I love that idea of teaching really being the basis. I mean, at the heart of this, I think the best coaches are very good teachers. Now, he talks about using paper here, and I think it's interesting. You know, when I first started using a digital playbook, somewhere around uh, 2004, you know, we put everything on PowerPoint. I was inspired by Andrew Coverdale, who's been a guest here multiple times, and I saw his PowerPoint presentation at uh, a coach's clinic. And you know, he he t I talked to him. He told me that that was his playbook, basically that he used PowerPoint for his playbook. But I found it very interesting. One of the sections in his playbook 
was what he called you draw it. So he would have a section where the players would have to draw out those plays. And I think that's a great way to reinforce learning. So as we get into our Zoom presentations, our flipped learning in the classroom, being able to present things on video, there's still a lot to be said about having to diagram that play. I've talked with Charlie Coiner of First Down Playbook a number of times about this. I think he shared with me something here from John Gruden that, you know, the, the, the diagram is so important because it becomes the starting point of the conversation. Yes, there's going to be a lot of detail and technique that goes into it, but you have to understand those basic assignments. And I think uh, looking at doing something like that, you know, having along with your digital playbook, just that empty notebook, that blank notebook, or maybe it's, it's something you print out and guides them a little bit through it. But having something like that where they actually have to do some of the work, I think, is going to reinforce that learning. And as Coach said, you know, their most complex plays, those guys could remember years and years later because they learned it that way. Coach continues on about the practice field. When we went onto the practice field to put our offense together, we always took one running play in the morning and one pass in the afternoon and followed another principle. The more carefully these basic plays were presented, the better a team's entire structure would be. The first play was a basic handoff, following the old axiom that the best play in football is straight ahead. It established the importance of the offensive line charge, of blowing people out, and set the tone for our total offensive development. Our second running play was the off-tackle play, or almost straight ahead, which illustrated the offensive line charge with more people involved. Our third was the end run or quick flip, which emphasized my belief that the quickest end run was the best end run. Our first pass play always utilized full protection for the quarterback, which established the blocking of the backs as well as the linemen. The second involved one flaring, and the third used both backs as receivers. The offense continued to grow on this daily basis. Starting the third week, we began our work on special teams in the mornings, always beginning with a punt, the most important play in football. We never tried to develop an extensive offense for the first preseason game. We were much more inter interested in how carefully we taught these few things, which would lay the groundwork for the entire season. Meanwhile, we were developing our defense in the same meticulous day-by-day -day manner. Each offensive play that we took on mirrored the defense that we wanted to teach. This entire working schedule was laid out by the coaching staff before we went to camp, and I knew in advance what we would do every day of our training season. This is a, a very interesting notion and definitely an old school one because, you know, time and time again, we've talked to coaches on this podcast about how they install their offense. We even did a series of uh, basically coaches who shared their different ideas in our Your Call series on installation of offense and defense. I'll late, link both of those because I think there's a ton of valuable information there and different perspectives. Uh, certainly, Paul Brown gives a different one in the day of three-day installs. Paul Brown's talking about one run play and one pass play in each practice. Very methodical in how they put those things in, but along that belief of he is going to set a strong foundation. So this fits very well for Paul Brown and how he believes in doing things. He continues on about their teaching. I always gave the players the next day's plans at our evening team meeting. The offense and defense would then be broken into their respective groups and the overall presentation given to the, each unit, after which the groups would split still into smaller units to work on the details. We used training film for this and put it all together the next day on the practice field. Two plays a day don't seem like much, 
but it didn't take long for some players to buckle under the accumulated mental burden. That's why we place so much emphasis on the more intelligent athlete. We never scrimmaged during the first two weeks of training camp. I always felt it took that long to condition the human body for the rigors of football. Even then, our first scrimmage was very controlled. Great emphasis was placed on avoiding injury because when a player was hurt, it set back our entire program. Kind of an interesting approach in our day of COVID uh, where we are limited in the contact. And you think about that, uh, you know, the no scrimmaging or essentially no team periods in those first couple weeks. They really wanted to get down their plays. They wanted to get down their footwork, the assignments, etc., And so they stayed away from some of those things that add the chaos to it, the team period. So in some ways, this might be worth looking at and considering what can we learn from Coach Brown and how he did things and obviously was very, very successful with them. He then goes on later in the chapter to talk about the technical aspects of the game. Although the philosophical aspects were the most important, the game's technical points also intrigued me. In formulating our technical football I started with the solid offensive blocker. I never was a brush block or scramble block advocate. I always felt that you could teach the dessert easier than the meat and potatoes. And since the running game is the meat and potatoes of every offense, I favored linemen who were exceptional run blockers. I never liked the big blubbery guy who would, could get back on two quick feet and absorb the pass rusher, but who never had much ability for blasting out someone on run blocking. We wanted the blow-em-out, run type of lineman because they were important for the success of our fullbacks. And from the earliest days in coaching, I always believed that the successful use of the fullback in any offense is the starting point in controlling a defense. Otherwise, they spread out and and come after your passer from good rushing angles. These basic technical aspects have always been a part of my football theory, and when I went to Great Lakes. I experimented with them as well as anything else that intrigued me. For two seasons, I worked in what amounted to a football laboratory. What emerged was a system of technical football that I then combined in Cleveland with my teaching philosophy, notebook, and classroom work. The practice of grading films in the offseason and my never-changing belief in leaving as little to chance as possible, I suppose that all these elements combined are what people refer to as the so-called Paul Brown system. I love that idea of the fullback. We had Coach Tyler Roll on from North Dakota State, and we did a, an episode that we called Making the Fullback Great Again. We talked about fullback play, and it's interesting what the fullback play can add to an offense. I, I just talked to one of my friends here in the area the other day, and what they're doing, they've typically been a 10 personnel, three by one, two by two, spread type of team. And this year, because of some of their personnel, they've progressed to adding a fullback and being more of a 12 and a lot of 21 personnel type of team. And, you know, he's, he echoed some of those things as what it can do for their offense. So definitely adds a different dynamic. I think it's fun football. And it was certainly something that Paul Brown believed in. He continues on. Over the years, I was often asked about the key elements in our technical football, and one of the first things I pointed out was that our teams were always fortunate to have big, exceptional fullbacks like Motley, Curly Morrison, Chick Jagade, Ed Modzalewski, and Jim Brown. 
We also placed a special emphasis on the quick flip and run type of play, featuring halfbacks such as Dub Jones, Bobby Mitchell, Chet Haneluk, Bob Cowan, and Billy Reynolds. We had many variations of the play, but regardless of what play we used, we had a point of not locking ourselves into running first and established a pass offense later or vice versa. Our theory was move the ball any old style. I suppose the play that got us the most notice was the draw play. The play's origin was a total accident. During a 1946 game, Motley and Graham collided trying to run a trap play on a muddy field. The collision created a broken play, and Otto, in desperation, seeing the lineman charging in on him, just handed the ball to Marion as they stood next to each other. The opposing lineman simply ran past Motley, and he took off for a big game. We didn't think much of it at the time, but looking at the game film, Otto said, I think that we could, that could become a play. So we developed the blocking assignments and the techniques which went with it. At first, we called it a pick. But since that word was also part of the passing terminology, I changed the name to draw because we wanted our offensive linemen to visualize it as drawing in the pass rushers. Then after our playoff victory over the New York Giants in 1950, we added the quarterback draw using the same principles because New York's defense had created some natural openings when their middle linebacker and defensive ends backpedaled on pass rushing situations. Otto had seen them and being an exceptional runner, had made some good gains in key situations. We incorporated the play into our game plan for the championship game against Los Angeles the following week, and it became a key to our final drive that gave us the victory. These draw plays have always been extremely effective in cooling off a pass rush, and it is important to note a distinction. A trap play cools off one man, a combination trap draw cools off two, but a total draw slows down the entire defensive line. One area where I had to change my beliefs in a hurry when I entered professional football was in the use of the forward pass from any point on the field. When we played the Brooklyn Dodgers in our first exhibition game in Akron, I tried to run the ball down their throats, but Glenn Dobbs put the Dodgers ahead by three touchdowns with his passing. I had never run into a passing offense like that before, and I became convinced even before the first half had ended that a team could not succeed in pro football by concentrating too heavily on the running game to the near exclusion of the passing attack. It was not a hard adjustment for me to make, however, because I had always believed in the effectiveness of a good passing game. We soon became the foremost exponent of the forward pass, and I think we were more successful with it than any other team in pro football during the 10 years we were champions. Otto Graham, of course, was a big reason for that success because he was such a brilliant passer. Everyone marveled that Otto could work so well with our receivers but he had learned to anticipate their movements by watching their shoulders. The intricate timing came from their working together for hours after the team had finished practicing each day. I always maintained that a receiver getting open wasn't just a matter of speed, but a matter of technique and knowing how. When zone defenses became popular against us because no one could consistently handle Lavelli, Speedy, or Dub Jones man for man, we developed new elements in our passing game. For example, we sent Otto rolling out to the right with a convoy of blockers. We called this rollout, and we did it to the weak side of our formations. We call it a waggle. In either case, Otto had the option of running or throwing the ball, utilizing his linemen as blockers. Again, his exceptional running and split-second judgment made these plays so effective. Later, when George Ratterman or Milt Plum was at quarterback, we had to take the plays out because neither was mobile enough. It's interesting to note that years later, when the Kansas City Chiefs played in the early Super Bowls, 
the same plays reappeared under the name of a floating pocket or the offense of the 70s. It was nothing new. Coach then talks about his role on defense. Though I place great emphasis on perfecting our offense, I never underestimated the importance of defense. The basis of any defense is how well a team can tackle, and we worked on it every day with the warm-up routine. I described earlier in which players made physical contact with each other's bodies in the ground. When the game opened, we felt we could tell how well our defense was doing, going to play if we saw gang tackling on the first play. If just one man tried to make the tackle and the rest watched or the runner was hit and slithered for three or four additional yards, then we knew it was, might be a long afternoon. Another tip-off was in our defensive line charge. If our lineman exploded across the line of scrimmage and blew aside the opponent's offensive line, we knew it would be our day. But if we saw them patty-caking and playing piano, as we called it, then we were in trouble. These things happen to us just as they can happen to any good team. You have to pay a physical price to dominate another team. And players, without meaning to, sometimes forget that. The game always comes down to blocking and tackling. I love it that coach emphasizes it here. A very simple way of thinking about it, regardless of how the game has evolved. You're never going to get away from blocking, tackling, and defeating blocks in order to be successful. Coach talks about some of the flexibility they had on defense in this next section and how they evolved to be able to stop offenses. In our early years in professional football, we used the five-man line, but when we saw that by dropping Bill Willis off a few yards, we had a big advantage in getting him to the play's point of attack. This tactic became the forerunner of the 4-3 defense. Then as defense became more sophisticated, we used blitzing linebackers, shooters we called them, and added loops and slants and other stunts that made the Browns one of pro football's best defensive teams. This fact was often overlooked because of our open offense, but in our first dozen seasons, we finished first overall defense five times and second five times. I was involved in our defensive game plan, though I left much of the detail to our defensive coaches. I remember one game in which I must have surprised Blanton Collier with my thoughts. It was against the New York Yankees, and he was showing me his plans for our goal line defense, in particular the options for covering Buddy Young, a water bug back who was often used as a man in motion when the Yankees were inside the five-yard line. We can cover him a couple different ways, Collier said to me, showing me his diagrams. What do you think? I thought for a moment, and knowing that Buddy was not a great pass receiver and that the Yankees were often reluctant to throw to him in key situations, I told him, the first time he goes in motion, let's not cover him at all. I don't think they want to throw to him, and it might confuse their offensive plans. Blanton just looked at me when I said that because it seemed unthinkable not to cover a potential pass receiver at the goal line. The first time the Yankees got close to our goal line and sent Buddy into motion, however, they did not throw to him, though he was left uncovered. Of course, their coaches spotted this and in subsequent plays did try to throw to him, but each time we had him covered well. They were determined to catch us again and again, but we never gave them another chance. That's what I mean by mixing up coverages and alignments. Never establish a pattern, even to the point of doing something two plays in a row. As for special teams, I've already mentioned how important the kicking game was to us. I knew there were just so many times an offense had a chance to score and I wanted to take advantage of every possible opportunity. If we couldn't get a touchdown, then three points were better than none and could spell the difference between a victory and defeat. Lou Groza won games time after time for us because the opposition had no one to match him. In fact, after we had... Been in the NFL for a short time, George Hallis noted that with a side that when a team fought its heart out to get deep 
into our territory and it was stopped, we sent out Horace Gillum and we kicked the ball so far and high that it ended up back where it, it began. However, if the Browns drove past midfield and were stopped, instead of bringing out a punter, like most teams, we put Lou on the field and he got three points with a field goal. One of the reasons I particularly enjoy pro football was that for the first time in my life, I was able to put all this together, the offense, the defense, the special teams, and take the time to refine and develop new ideas because for the first time, football was a full-time business. I liked having enough time to immerse myself in teaching, classroom work, the film studies, and all that went with our football, as well as having the players' total attention and concentration all day and all season long. It was a full-time job for them, too. It's interesting because that's really how football is for us now. It's part of our culture that we just think of it like that, that it's a full-time job, that we're immersed in it. As coaches, we spend so much time learning the game. And, you know, this is at a time when football really made that turn to become something that was full-time. Coach talks about player input in this next part. I also encourage full participation from the players and never disdained anyone's ideas. Our game plans were the work of many different people, including the players. There were no great mysteries attached to our success. We were meticulous in our preparations, and we even practiced how to practice. I took one complete session to show our players exactly how and where they should go on the practice field, and those routines remained the same whether it was a practice day or a game day. Everyone ran onto the field together each day. After calisthenics, each unit went to the same spot to go through its individual drills, and on Sundays before a game, that's where the players did their individual warm-ups. We even started our practice at 1 o'clock every afternoon, the scheduled time for Sunday's kickoff. I felt that our bodies became conditioned to this and this kind of routine that a team played as it practiced. As a coach, I never believed in working into the wee hours of the night. I personally functioned and thought more clearly when I was well-rested, and I think a coaching staff does too. I've heard some professional coaches brag about working 18 and 20-hour days, sleeping on cots in their offices, and I've always wondered just how much they really accomplished during all those hours. They must feel insecure because I don't know any of them who has ever won a world championship. During our years in Cleveland and Cincinnati, we spent less time on the practice field than any team in football. Following a Sunday game in Cleveland, everyone took Monday off because we never received our films until Tuesday. So every Monday, Katie and I used to drive down to Maslin to visit our parents. All the coaches worked on Tuesday, but I tried to make sure that every player had dinner at home with his family that night. Our players reported on Wednesday for film work and loosened up with touch tackle games. Sometimes it seemed to me that they fought harder in those games than on Sunday. We used to match the big guys against the big guys and the fast guys against the fast guys. I honestly think that in those days our players looked forward to practice and it was a rare day when the practices weren't laced with enthusiasm, fun, and vigor. There were times when I literally had to chase them off the field in the afternoon. Paul Brown goes on to tell several stories and give some more examples of things in this chapter called the Paul Brown system, but I thought it provided a great look at some of the things that he believed in, some insight into some things, uh, some ideas maybe that have become uh, much different than what we do now, but I think are worth reflecting on. But, you know, just hearing this at the end, that idea of keeping it fun, even this being a full-time professional job, as Coach described it, he wanted to make sure those players were having fun and attention to the detail probably was the biggest thing that came through here. Uh, I think there's a lot of validation for all the good things that you guys do as coaches that we talk about on this podcast. And I think it's always good to go back to some of those historical things 
and listen to what great coaches had to say. I want to thank Coach Brad Birchfield for reminding me of this book. It was kind of sitting back on my shelf, and I forgot I had it. And I remembered this chapter in there, so I was glad to be able to share that with you. Again, the name of the book is PB, The Paul Brown Story. It is by Paul Brown with uh, a writer named Jack Clary. Uh, Check that out. Mine is a paperback version of this. Uh, Got it somewhere on eBay, but it is a great read, just full of great football knowledge. Speaking of great football knowledge, check out all we do in our systems on footballdevelopment.com. Those are some cutting-edge techniques and teaching for blocking, defeating blocks, and tackling. Again, that's at footballdevelopment.com. And check out all we're doing to help build the game from the youth level on up in the football development model. You can find that at fdm.usafootball.com. This is Lou Groza of the Cleveland Browns. Hi, Ohio for Cleveland.